0: Uh, hello everyone out there, wherever you are, either on, a, on headphones or on speakers, either on your way somewhere or just staying home. Welcome to Citizen Reporter. This is Bicycle Mark with you, and uh, appreciate everyone tuning in and staying subscribed because uh, the podcast does roll on in 2022, and uh, definitely one element that was missing in the last few months was an episode where we bring my dear friend Matthew Dons back on the program, and so today we are alleviating that, uh, that lack, and uh, we have Matthew on the line from Japan. Hi, Matthew.
1: Hi, it's great to be back. It has, yeah, it's been a while.
0: Yeah, uh, I almost said that it's been a year, but uh, that may not be the case. But I don't know because no, so much has happened.
1: Close, yeah, close. And yeah, uh, time does seem to be um, compressed recently. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. For you as well.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I live in increments. Well, that that might be an interesting discussion as well. But I, I live in increments of like three to four hours, being <laughs> revolving around a baby and the needs yeah. of the baby, which are. I guess, met within, within about three to four hour cycles. Yep. Um, yep. and, and so that, that becomes what is important to me, uh, which yes. is rather odd. Yep. Um, and then occasionally I realize, you know, be it, uh, my beard or my hair, it's usually something involving appearances. I realize, Oh, <laughs> I've been ignoring me. Um, uh, <laughs> But, uh, and, and, and I say, you know, I bring that up because one, you're, you're a father, Matthew, but also uh, you've been living uh, with cancer for, wait, I got to go back in my head. Uh, it's about five years. It's
1: um, six years now. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, six years from July. Yeah. So July, July 2016, I was diagnosed and um, yeah, found I, I had cancer. A week later something like that. Found out it was terminal. A week after that, found out that I had maybe seven to nine months to live realistically with, I mean, that's with treatment. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But that was six years ago now, which um, seems many lifetimes ago.
0: Yeah. And even within terms, like, so here I say, I didn't check with you on this. I say you're, you have had cancer for the last, okay, six years. Is that accurate to say that you still live with cancer?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's a very good point. So, you know, in cancer we have we talk about the stage of cancer. So, you know, stage one, generally it's in one place, stage two, it's kind of growing in that place. Stage three, it's breaking out of that place, and stage four, it's typically spread to somewhere distant in the body. Um, so my cancer is diagnosed at stage four. And the current thinking is that you don't go down a stage. So if your cancer's successfully treated it seems if you were stage three then you're still stage three it's not like it um it reverts back because hmm. the evidence and the statistics say that unfortunately once it's spread it's spread um but we're just at the point in time when that's starting to change um with the, with new treatments and um better testing uh which allow you know better testing kind of feeds back into better treatments because you can learn quicker what's going on so with more accurate testing you can say if something's working or not or if you should switch to a different treatment or if you can maybe relax a bit Um, so uh so yeah when you when you've got it you've got it basically uh with early stage cancers if you get to the point of no evidence of disease and you stay that like that for maybe five years possibly 10 years depending on the cancer time Um, cancer type rather than, yeah, you may be declared kind of cured. And generally, what is meant by cured is that your chance of getting the cancer recurring is the same chance as someone else getting cancer, right? So, if you had breast cancer and the surgeon successfully removed everything and you did the follow up chemotherapy, you do your blood tests every month, your scans every three months, and maybe after five, six, seven years, the Doctors say, you know, we think the cancer is gone for good. Um, the chance of it coming, coming back is very small and you're essentially cured. Yeah. Um, that has not happened much, but yeah, that's the that's the idea.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, how I, I don't know. And of course, when you were diagnosed, and even before that, you've always been someone who um, researches, who likes to know, who values, and I'm not saying other people don't, but... You you value knowing how something works. You're you're a hacker. Sure. Yeah. And um and and in even now in some of the explanations that you give, I'm I'm learning things I didn't totally know. Maybe I'd heard but wasn't uh, sure. So uh, yeah, even regarding how we talk about cancer, uh, including in a situation like yours now, uh, because yeah, once upon a time they were uh, you know, it's, it's stage four and they're telling you, they're giving you estimates on how long you have to live, uh, and, uh, and how bad it's going to get. And of course you, you live on and actually, I think you've had a pretty good, uh, especially the last year or so, you've been feeling pretty good. I mean, talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, you know, f- six years ago when I was diagnosed, the the like survival average survival seven to nine months with treatment, um and that's because the cancer had spread into my abdominal membrane. So, even though it's colorectal cancer, which is a very you know, it's often described as being eminently treatable,
0: hmm.
1: um, once it's in the abdominal membrane, it's very difficult to treat because it's spread over this wide area, it's lots of little tumors, so you can't really like remove them with surgery. They're too small to shop on scans. They're flat, so they don't shop on scans very well. Chemotherapy and other drugs um, don't get in properly because the, there's like a blood barrier with the uh, the membrane. So that's why the prognosis was so bad. So you usually talk about the survival in terms of what's the average survival, and then you talk about things like what percentage of people get to live a year, what percentage of people get to live five years in particular. So with in 2016, colon cancer spread to the abdominal membrane fewer than 1% of patients are alive five years later. So like, so I'm now, you know, I'm in the 0.1 or 0.3% survivors group or something like that, Um, which is very nice to still be alive. Mm. Um, and when I had the, um, original treatment that included surgery, removing a chunk of my intestine, I had the colostomy bag. And then, um, a year ago, uh, last July, I finally had the reversal surgery, um, often called like the stoma closure surgery. Um, I was yeah, turned down for that by twelve surgeons. Found a thirteenth one who said mm. yes. Um, it was a risky surgery. There was a high chance of it just being abandoned during the surgery, and that was like part of the agreement of doing the surgery was that I had to kind of accept that likely that I would be woken up and you know told the surgery was abandoned um, if the surgeon had found kind of extra you know cancer around the abdomen he would have had to give up if he had found a lot of scarring from the previous two surgeries, he would have had to give up because he'd have had to assume there was cancer hidden behind the scarring. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that went well. So then I feel like for the past year, I've had a somewhat normal life. I mean, there's, you know, the, the surgeries and the chemo result in like life, life-changing issues um and i have bits of my body missing um i have kind of very deep damage to my body from the chemotherapy kind of um like step maybe stem cell changes um that you, you don't hear about because patients generally wouldn't live enough to experience them um oh. so it's kind of interesting <laughs> you know as, as treatments become more effective Um, and patients live longer, we're now getting more familiar with these very, very long-term side effects. Um, I drop stuff a lot, which is very scary because chemotherapy damages your peripheral nerves, so there's like the the long nerves in your arms and legs, Um, and that's a very weird feeling when you're holding something and it just seems to jump out of your hand. Mm. It's very disconcerting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know it's been an interesting and challenging six years, but the the last year has been very different. Not not having the colostomy bag, having a lot more freedom, feeling a lot more normal, hmm. being able to exercise properly again for the first time in five years. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's interesting.
0: And and you said. Uh, like how you put it, uh, you know, tw- 12, doctors said no, and you had to go find the 13th. There's two things I'm wondering one, how did you know to go find the 13th and, and the other, I suppose the average person never gets that far because yeah, you just, it yeah. starts to seem like it's impossible. They're not going to do it. So I would need to focus elsewhere. I'm not going to do this.
1: So. The kind of motivation was, was yeah, de- desperation. Like for me, the colostomy bag was the most, it, it sounds silly, but it's like that's more of a challenge than like being facing imminent death um, because I just felt I wasn't me. I couldn't do any of the stuff I liked. And, and, you know, I missed out on a whole bunch of stuff. Like, you know, for five years, I didn't have a bath with my young daughter and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, didn't go swimming at all uh you know in japan going to like the hot springs is a very important part of culture i didn't do that i know some people do do those kind of things with a costume bag but um i think when you're younger you know i was 36 when i was diagnosed um you're yeah maybe more self-conscious and also just being an active person in your mid-30s you want to be doing a whole bunch of stuff yeah so it was really desperation that motivated me to keep going. Um, also, I'd, I did understand that, you know, a cultural issue, not, not just a Japanese cultural issue, but a medical cultural hmm. issue, which hmm. is that doctors don't want to go against the previous opinion of the, you know, the previous professional. So typically with this kind of surgery, the person who did the surgery would then do the follow-up surgery. Um, in my case, the surgeon didn't want to do it because he felt it was too risky, and the benefit would be too, or potentially the quality of life afterwards be, would be too bad. Um, the surgery is risky because the point for my intestines to reconnect is very low down in my body, so there's problem with access. Um, that ty- typically, that surgery, if the connection point is very low down, you get a lot of problems afterwards. Mm. You get a thing called lower anterior resection syndrome. Um, And in my case, there are a lot of extra dangers because of of having five years of intensive cancer treatment. So, you know, lots of um, radiotherapy to my abdomen that causes scarring inside and that causes, you know, bad bleeding during surgery. Um, I had five years of chemotherapy, which damages your heart and liver and, you know, so makes it less makes the surgery more risky, essentially. Um, but I just had to keep going because, um, yeah, I didn't really want to continue with life with, yeah. with, with a colostomy bag. It was that that kind of serious for me. It was like, which you know, again, I am sure sounds crazy when you are kind of fighting through terminal cancer, um, but it's just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel I was me. Yeah. So it was, it was a very odd life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Quality of life, you know, even when you're sick or when you have uh, an Ill- yeah an illness such as cancer, I think that's I, 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 I still quite essential. Uh, and and you know, of course, it's not always the priority, perhaps. But I don't know. Anytime you talked about the. Um, the complexity and the limitations because of a colostomy bag without ever having had one, but, uh, knowing people throughout my life, I thought, mm. yeah, no, I, I understand that. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 understood your, your struggle. I, what was puzzling at the time was how indeed how you find uh, for example, a surgeon that's going to do this, uh, hoping that the surgery goes, uh, well, which even I remember the days after just being concerned, right? Like- uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So again, because of yeah. my situation and then the, the specific nature of the surgery, it meant that first couple of weeks was very, very, very dangerous. Yeah. Um, the the high chance of the intestines leaking. So I'm yeah. It's, it's now a distant memory, although it was only a year ago. But as soon as you said that, I thought, oh, yeah, of course, because I had 10 days, no food after surgery. And the first seven days was no water as well. Yes. So, um, and that was because, yeah, if there had been a leak in the intestines or in, if you're eating or drinking or whatever, that leaks into the body, you know, p- potentially lethal. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, you know, fortunately, I just found this exceptionally good surgeon. Um, He said that my surgery was high risk, but his surgical team is a big university hospital, a teaching hospital in Tokyo. Hmm. His team, their stats for this type of surgery were kind of among the best in Japan. So that that kind of average leakage rate was something like half the national average. Um, Yeah, so even though mine was kind of a, a risky, a risky surgery. Um, yeah. He felt he could at least attempt it as long as I really knew the risks. And, you know, I'd been thinking about the surgery and reading about it for five years. Yeah. Um, I think that was maybe one of the deciding factors was that he, he knew that I knew in detail about the surgery, the risks, the, you know, the, the, just the potential that, it, it would even make things worse or or, um, yeah. So uh, it was a, yeah, it was a tough time, but the memories have just shrunk now. I'm kind of now having to like think through it, how tough it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I probably
0: have to, uh, hold on a sec. I probably have to send you another link. I thought actually that the, with just one-on-one calls, they wouldn't limit the time, but I see that they actually will. Um, I might send you another link. I don't want to get snagged by this 10 minute thing. Uh, we can just use the exact same link actually, and we'll get what we need. Um, so it's still in Facebook, and huh? we just click on that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, I need to close this meeting first, right? Probably,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go click on that link as well. It should Okay. be right back. All right, so uh, just a gap in the audio that I can see quite clearly. Um, okay. In in staying on this subject, and, and eventually, I definitely want to get to still today uh, um, your activities these days. But I feel like I'm I'm going back a little bit uh, just over the past year or more. But there w- there was something I wanted to ask you. Um, so you mentioned chemo, of course. Um, the one element very early on in your treatment was your interest and, uh, well, immunotherapy, right? I mean, your experience in my life is probably has shed the most light on immunotherapy, you know, before, uh, what you've gone through, I think I had heard of it maybe with like Jimmy Carter or something like I, I I had not known many people. Is that right? Was the Jimmy Carter doing, you anyway, Um, I remember something about it in the press and occasionally reading an article, but I had not had any personal, uh, I don't think I had any personal experience uh, or people in my life anyway. So you pursued immunotherapy, Having having read the 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 ins and the outs of it, um, looking back now on that, um, maybe two questions. One, uh, how did it contribute to your uh, current uh, uh, state? Your your uh, yeah, you're surviving uh, as far as you know. Is there any is there any way to know, or is this just not something that you know? Is just, just a combination of so many things that immunotherapy is just one piece.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a really good and very pertinent question. I mean, it's it's the big question in cancer at the moment. Um, So, what the way cancer survivorship seems to work is that all long-term survivors survive not because the treatments destroying the cancer, but that somehow their immune system was able to deal with the remaining cancer. Hmm. So for example, with with chemotherapy, when you treat cancer with chemotherapy, it hopefully kills a lot of the cancer cells, but the remaining ones are likely to be chemotherapy resistant for whatever reason. I mean, I, I don't really know about that mechanism, but just for the sake of argument, let's say 10% of the cancer cells just by chance have a thicker cell membrane and the chemotherapy drug can't get in. Or, um, or another um, idea is that maybe there are this, uh, like dormant cancer cells. Chemotherapy targets cancer cells that are dividing and growing. So if there's dormant cancer cells that are just sitting there, they're not going through the cell cycle, and therefore the chemotherapy can't kill them. Hmm. But it seems that when cancer cells are being killed by chemotherapy or uh, by radiotherapy, your body, your your immune surveillance system sees these dead and dying bits of cell and then can finally recognize this is cancer. We should deal with it. <laughs> um so when we look at long-term survivors, it seems that there's always some kind of, Im- or I don't want to say always, but it is believed that long-term survivorship comes from some kind of immune activity. Hmm. And the, um, the other side of that is that most cancer treatments cause a lot of immunosuppression. When you have surgery, it's very traumatic for your body, your system is uh, immunosuppressed very severely afterwards when you have chemotherapy it kills new cells well unfortunately that includes white blood cells um, which are your immune you know your immune system when you have radiotherapy you know blood's going around your body i think it takes something like 14 minutes to go around your body Hmm. so if you imagine having a Let's so say you have a tumor in your chest and doing radiotherapy. And if the cycle is longer than 14 minutes, then all your blood has got irradiated. And unfortunately, white blood cells, very delicate, tend to get damaged. Yep. So you have this situation where patients need a robust, healthy immune system for long term survivorship. And yet, cancer treatments typically suppress the immune system. Now, interestingly, when cancer was first kind of studied like si- properly scientifically, which I guess would have been in the maybe th- 1920s, I, I really hmm. should, you know, get more of a grip on cancer history. But when it was more scientifically discovered, it was kind of or assessed, it was like kind of decided stroke assumed that the immune system didn't have any role in uh, fighting cancer. That you know, cancer is part of your body. The immune system can't see it, and unfortunately, this meant that most of the research for the most of the serious research for many decades didn't really include looking at the immune system. Hmm. So, immunotherapy was um, invented, I think, in the I'm going to say like early 1980s, maybe, hmm. an American doctor called Dr. Rosenberg at the NIH in the US National Institute of Health. And he was, yeah, he was kind of convinced that it should be possible to use uh, immune system cells um, from. Uh, I think he was using porcine cells, so like like pig cells, mm-hmm. putting them in humans, um, and seeing if he could get an immune response. Now, at that time, I mean, cancer treatments were very very crude. Um, for particularly for like skin cancer and bone cancer, amputation was, I mean like the mainstay of the treatments, right? If yeah. you know, if you had um, cancer in the bone, it was you know if it was in a limb, that was that was good news because it can take off the limb.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. So he's de- yeah dealing with um, patients who are in really really serious trouble. Um, and now, I mean, immunotherapy has become like a whole branch of oncology. So it's not it's not just like a treatment; it's like a whole branch with many different kinds of treatment. And the one that I have had, um, or two related therapies. In fact, they're both types of adoptive cell immunotherapy. So that means actually putting cells in the patient. Mm-hmm. Some types of immunotherapy, you put something in that's like maybe a marker for the cancer cells or you put something that somehow boosts the immune activity of the patient but adoptive cell immunotherapy actually brings cells in and mine is autologous um, which means i guess it's latin like from the self or something so um it means the cells are grown from my own white blood cells and the good point of that is in theory, I won't get some terrible allergic reaction. Yeah. Um, so it's considerably safer. But then the other unique point of, of the therapy I have is that it focuses on uh, cells called NK cells, which are able to see cancer cells that are not labeled as cancer cells. Hmm. And as you can imagine, they are the trouble more troublesome cells for your body, right? Cause they don't, you know, usually when you think about your immune system, you get sick. The immune system, the innate immune system, kind of attacks the, the these foreign cells. Let's you know, let's say, um bacterial or viral infection, and then those cells get labelled, right? Ant- antigens, right? You know, we talk about antigens and antibodies. You know, you want to get have an infection, you get antibodies, and then you're protected. And many for many, many infectious diseases, you're protected for life, right? Your 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 body can now recognize those cells forever. Mm. Um, of course, when, when we're in the womb, we get some of our immune system um, from our mother, right? We, we kind of in, inherit some of that ability to recognize things. Mm-hmm. And then we have the immune surveillance system as well that can recognize kind of foreign things. Yeah. So this treatment is using NK cells, and also one uh, another related treatment, also autologous, also adoptive cell immunotherapy, but uh, using dendritic cells, which are ones that look a bit like octopuses or starfish or something, and they grab on to dead and dying bits of cells, and they travel around your body to your lymph nodes, where they present these to other white blood cells, NK cells and T cells, that then know that kind of this is what the the bad cells look like and then they go out and kill them. So yeah, for me it's it's probably the main factor that's kept me alive in 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 two ways. So one is it's done a lot to deal with the cancer in my body, but also at various points it's allowed me to have other treatments. Mm. So it's opened up other treatment options. Because when cancer spread a lot in your body, a lot of treatments just aren't worth pursuing. So a lot of surgeries aren't really worth doing. Because if they, you know, if the surgeon says, "Yes, I can cut this cancer from your liver," but I'm not going to do it because you've got a lot of cancer in your lymph nodes, and there'd be no point. Um, but with immunotherapy, fortunately, there's been enough tumor shrinkage, and in some cases, tumors disappearing. That's opened up other treatment options yeah. um but there's still a huge amount of resistance to immunotherapy in the world of oncology yeah. um the world of oncology is very um siloed you know radiotherapists don't like surgeons surgeons don't like yeah. oncologists and you know, yeah. they, they all dislike each other they all think their treatment is the best and that all patient problems are caused by other treatments yeah um and immunotherapy, you know, there's always been a big promises. Most of the commercial drugs have failed to be as miraculous mm. as the uh, drug companies say. Mm-hmm. You know, they come up with these, these one wonderful kind of one shot immunotherapy drugs that should cure the patient, and that never seems to happen in reality.
0: Yeah.
1: But yes, it's uh, it's interesting to to get a glimpse into this very peculiar world.
0: Yeah, and and over years, right? That's also interesting. I mean, you always said, exactly. you've said on this yep. podcast for sure that among the reasons, I mean, the many reasons to continue to the importance of having more time to continue to survive, um, on that list of reasons is uh, when it comes to cancer, the the developments keep coming. So, if you're around yeah. for them, yep. All the better, uh, but stay—you know—how to stay around for them, and uh, yeah, even with immunotherapy. As a as a lay person, which I very much am, I I consume my my pop culture episodes of shows, and I and I have found even as a subject in a script of of series and or films, it comes up. And I yes. think if you looked at film and <laughs> from the eighties, nineties. Uh, you would never hear the term, um, and and maybe a testament to how alternative or simply not known it was. Also, I guess expensive. If you're talking about Hollywood productions, then Americans couldn't get it uh, covered by their insurance, so th- that would be a thing. Um, so, but it's interesting to me. I, I was just latest example. I think was there's a, a show produced by Amazon about three autistic people living together. Um, or struggling to live uh, together and and indeed one of them is uh, in their family touched by cancer and so of course being uh, autistic uh, or at least this uh, uh, what do you call it this version of someone with a- autism dug really deep into the issue of immunotherapy and yeah. brought it as an advocate to the oncologist and the oncologist, this was in Los Angeles uh, was completely familiar and they sort of had a not a duel, in fact, but a a conversation about uh, all the ins and outs Mm. at the moment. And I thought, well, we've come a long way, I think, um, to the point that it's, uh, yeah, it's reaching people in their homes who maybe don't have cancer, but know about cancer.
1: Um. I mean, the the way I often think about it is um, like the theory of plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this idea that, there used to be just like one giant land mass and it Uh broke up. And now we have continents and things. And that's a very modern theory. I mean, that's, you know, I've just looked up on Wikipedia um, early first decades of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely ridiculed Mm -hmm. because it was obviously such a childish, stupid idea that some guy had looked at a map and said, Oh, this, you know, these countries over here seem to kind of fit into those countries over there. Never. And everyone, you know, said, you're an idiot. Don't come and speak at your, our conferences. Don't publish your papers in our journals. I mean, it, you know, it was like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um And, yeah, immunotherapy was very much like that, mm-hmm. Um that, you know, these um, pioneers of immunotherapy uh, were getting amazing results but for a tiny subset of patients and that means it's you know it's generally not reproducible it looks kind of not exactly suspicious but it looks useless mm. it's like oh you you know you did this research project with these hundreds of patients and you know 99 got no results and and a handful got some miraculous result yeah um So, but of course, now there's this whole move towards personalized medicine, precision medicine. Um, So then if you can get something that does work for a tiny percentage of people, if you can somehow work out which percentage of people it's going to work for, then it's fantastic because you've got treatments that can give incredible results. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's, uh, but if, I mean, all throughout the history of, science i guess you know there are theories that now we can't understand why they were so ridiculed at i mean theory of evolution being an obvious one um you know i'm sure you you know you've seen the the um kind of sketches making fun of darwin like the classic picture of darwin as a giant ape yeah
0: um
1: yeah. and resistance yeah the, the whole kind of story of evolution is very interesting because i think we often forget that the theory of evolution um came after the theory of genetics but darwin was completely unaware of the theory of genetics because it was you know published in a journal a handful of people have read it um and yeah he was completely unaware of it and if 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 you read you know his darwin's work he had no idea about the mechanism that information could be passed along by generation because he didn't have an idea of genetics yeah. genetics has been discovered by a monk um looking at i think populations of sweet peas or like traits in sweet peas oh, yeah. flowers of sweet peas oh, yeah. huh. um uh was it uh, M- mendel that was the guy's name ah. mendel um and yeah, Darwin unfortunately was completely un- unaware of of his work. So you can imagine exactly the same sort of things happening now, where you have isolated scientists around the world who don't get invited to speak to the at the conferences because their ideas are too extreme, mm-hmm. um, or yeah, or or other reasons. Right, their, their their papers get rejected for not being scientific enough. And yet, if we could just get that information out to people, maybe it would be game changing. I mean, maybe cancer would become part of history very quickly.
0: It's interesting because, like, it occurs to me we also live in a world where there are, we've got everything. We've got the uh, potentially very useful ideas that people need, if only, would be open to listening to you know, would make a difference uh, for good. Yeah. But then we also have people who have theories and ideas that they would also like to push that are kept out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I was just, you know, sort of reading election results from Italy, and there was some discussion about the far right, having been, they attempted to keep them out, to keep these ideas sort of out of the mainstream, but it's it's yeah. become impossible to, um, I don't know, I guess to keep them at bay, they have now, at least in the democratic process, uh, found some kind of legitimacy, at least in the form yes. of being yep. elected. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, as you speak, I'm, I'm remembering the why uh, these kind of things happen. And, of course, what you're pointing out is the the problem with these kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, judgments, calls that are made and how they're made maybe is is also that then leave out uh, really useful
1: ideas and and techniques on especially in the area of science. But yeah, not only. Th- yeah. Th- this is despite having all the access to the technology and you know I think that one of the main ideas behind the web was in fact the whole Mendel Darwin thing. That was that was one of the big ideas. So, so you know, Tim Berners Lee, when he developed the web at CERN, system was called Enquire, and it was he he developed it because it was difficult to share scientific documents between different computers. So, you know, at the time, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there were the Macintosh, there were PCs, there were Silicon Graphics workstations. Uh, there were next station, so he, he in fact used the next, which was the you know the one that Steve Jobs developed in exile from Apple, mm-hmm. and they were all incompatible, right? You, it was very difficult to um, connect these computers together. Yeah, um, you you could you you know you could connect them by um, the well the ARPANET and later the internet, but if I sent you a file. And you know, if you were on a Mac and I was on a, you know, Microsoft Windows, we we couldn't, you know, we couldn't exchange files, right? right. Um, and, and Tim Berners Lee, I think he's actually mentioned that he he's specifically thinking of this situation with, um, a Darwin being uh, unfamiliar with Mendel's work, <laughs> that you know, just this idea that scientists might be working on the same thing on the other side of the world, and wouldn't it be ridiculous if they couldn't? exchange their documents, yeah. exchange their results or whatever. Um, well, now we have all the tools. I mean, we have free video conferencing. We have super speed file transfer for no money at all. And yet doesn't change any of the kind of the, the social and the kind of political barriers to talking to each other sensibly as adults and yeah. <laughs> exchanging information and working together.
0: And hey, let, let that be a segue, Matthew, because it's, it's definitely always food for thought. Um, this year, although I think you've been this has been in the back of your mind throughout the last few years, but you're um, you've set out on a journey related to information, knowledge, the experience of of uh, living with cancer. I mean, where to begin with all of it? You're you have a mission. So, now,
1: right? <laughs> so it happened very organically. Um, you know, what, one of the reasons that I'm alive is, is unfortunately Facebook, I, I joined a whole bunch of Facebook groups and communicated with other cancer patients. I did a lot of crowdfunding to pay for my treatment and a lot of that shared on Facebook and the donations came in and I was able to have treatment that I couldn't have had otherwise.
0: Yeah.
1: And I kept on living. And people in the various groups were kind of asking why I kept on living mm. what were my, what were my doctors doing? What are these strange treatments I've been having? Um, yeah. so then it just happened that way. P- people were people were messaging me or you know just I would I would like post about a scan result or, or something or a question I had. And people would start asking about these um, treatments I was having and the results that I was getting. And so that just became unsustainable very, very quickly having <laughs> lots of individual people contacting me. So I thought it would be better to have something where I could exchange information with the groups of people at once. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, like, it, like you, like you do, you register a domain and for, reasons that i can't really remember i thought make cancer history.jp. uh i, I really wanted a jp domain yeah. um,
0: life, Japan. Life goal. <laughs> um
1: they're ridiculously expensive and most is well most name registrars can't register them for you so mm. uh i eventually found like google domains would would register it yeah. um and uh yep so, so I, re- I registered that and you know threw up a Embarrassingly clumsy WordPress site, and um started putting some bits of information on just so that you know when people message me on Facebook, I'd say oh, I have this link yeah. to this page where I put the information. So it kind of grew out of that. Although I was, I was just thinking, why are patients and specialists and researchers not talking to each other in a in a proper way? Yeah. And. You know, if you remember with a bar camp, you know, um, you remember you came to the second Tokyo, Tokyo yeah. or second Tokyo bar camp that I did, I think. And in you know, a bar camp is a very, very, very powerful way to share information very quickly.
0: Hmm.
1: It's a very easy thing to do. Um, it doesn't cost any money. It's a very, very robust model that's been proven all over the world, probably tens of thousands of times, and yet it's an example of something that's completely unknown in the medical world. So people are going to these, you know, ridiculously expensive conferences. (laughs) It's too DIY,
0: Matthew. It's too too informal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, you know, they might have, if you're a researcher, your university may pay for one conference a year for you to go to, right? That's that's quite typical mm-hmm. in, in Europe and the US, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a travel budget that lets you go to one faraway conference a year. So typically you'd go to ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, that kind of big conference. And that's it. That's That's your travel budget gone um and you have all the problems that are associated with conferences Mm -hmm. um whereas a just simple thing like bar camp so one of my ideas was you know i want to do some bar camp style stuff for nurses for example get them exchanging you know they've got all that expertise um get them sharing that Mm -hmm. of course covid hit so that kind of um postponed my bar camp plans, but still, I think I think now now is a, a good time to do it. And then, so, so yeah, for kind of a year or something, I'd been doing the doing the website. I ran a few kind of Q and A sessions again, just because I wanted to deal with people as a group. So I would post in a Facebook group. I'd say, you know, next week I'm doing a Q and A session. It's at this time. You know, here's the Zoom link or here's the free registration page on Eventbrite. So I do a few of these sessions and then a few weeks ago, I thought, well, I really need to do some kind of course for cancer patients just to kind of share what I've learned from six years of treatments and study and talking to patients and talking to doctors. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So go ahead. And I came up with this idea of the course and I also thought, well, this is, maybe newsworthy i'll email some newspapers in the uk so i did some googling i found i think 13 email addresses for health editors at various uk major newspapers right so i had 13 email addresses in, in a in a spreadsheet and um i tried my best to write a motivating convincing email and something like a press release wasn't really but anyway i sent it off um i got three out of office responses mm-hmm. <laughs> i got two real replies um who seemed kind of interested in in doing interviews one of them for some reason i just couldn't get an interview set up you know i was chasing this journalist on the phone and whatever but the other guy um he uh, interviewed me for the Eye, which is a British newspaper, and uh, they have a popular news website called iNews, News, and it's the most trusted newspaper in England, allegedly. And um, it's taken over from The Guardian, which I'm sure The Guardian yeah. is very upset about. Yeah. Um, I think The Guardian isn't trusted because there are too many spelling mistakes. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was... Um, Two and a half weeks ago.
0: Yeah.
1: And my story was like the most popular health story that weekend for any UK newspaper. Hundreds of thousands of people saw it. And since then everything's just kind of exploded with people messaging me and emailing me from all over the world wanting help. And I've been running this this course um, as online kind of online sessions, live sessions, uh, with a topic for each one. I came up with kind of 10 topics I thought would be of use. So one topic is about side effects and one topic is kind of explaining about surgery and radiotherapy. Another one is about immunotherapy. Another one is about crowdfunding. Another one is physical and mental health. So I came up with these topics and I've started running the live sessions. Um, I've run three so far. Uh, Doing another one soon. Um, All about comparing the different cancer mm-hmm. treatments and the way i do them is i introduce the topic that bit is recorded i mean I, it's done live but i record it mm-hmm. and i turn i stop the recording and then people can ask questions just so that they can talk freely
0: yeah.
1: um, and then i'm putting together some pdfs and notes and stuff to go with that Yep. Yeah. So it's all kind of, um, kicking off at the moment, which is, uh, amazing. Really. Yeah.
0: And, and participants wise, uh, maybe in terms of percentage, I, c- I can imagine a lot of people are, uh, themselves cancer patients, but what's the breakdown, yeah. uh, so far?
1: So, mo- yeah, I, I, I think 80%, 85% registered, say they're cancer patients. So 700 or something people have registered. Um, I was really, really hoping for at least 10. Um, <laughs> I thought 20, 20 would be fantastic because you get like a 50% no-show rate anyway, right? So if if, if 20 people registered and 10 people joined the sessions, right. that would be amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, but in fact, like 700 people have um, registered. Yeah. Um, and then for individual sessions, kind of 30, 40, even, even more. People are kind of registering for those sessions and maybe yeah 20 25 join, join actually managed to join the yep. session um quite a few people join with someone else so you know it's, it's zoom they put on their camera i see they're sat with a family member in wow. you know in their living room
0: yeah
1: furiously taking notes and um yeah yeah so it's it's been amazing really and now i, I try and keep up the momentum to open some kind of research coordination center, some, something, you know, a, a physical presence in Tokyo that could link together patients and clinical practitioners and researchers, get them talking to each other quickly so that it's easier for patients to get into trials. It's easier for researchers to find out how their treatments are being used by doctors. Um, it's you know easier for doctors to talk in a non-clinical setting with groups of patients to find out what it's actually like when you know you're struggling with chemotherapy or you're um, dealing with a colostomy bag, or whatever. Sure. Um, so that's the next kind of big step is yeah. is really, get some physical presence and really focus on coordinating. So look at the people who are already doing something worthwhile, who just need a kind of accelerant, get them connected together and share some of the knowledge. So that's where I'm at at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and still in the, I could also still see in the near future, as you were saying, it might now be possible. This uh, bar camp style gathering of now I'm thinking of the medical professionals uh, certainly uh, nurses um, is that still something you're sort of keeping as a at some point you like to do? Yeah,
1: absolutely, because you know one of the kind of the so-called rules of bar camp is that ev- you know everyone is a volunteer at bar camp, so you're you know you're expected not to be like a passive agent like at a big medical conference where you. You know, you arrive. Yep. You're given your corporate goodie bag with all the sponsorship materials. Sit in the back. <laughs> you, yeah, you <laughs> sit through hours and hours of talks. Right. Um, maybe scraps of information in some of them are useful for you. Yep. Whereas, you know, if I could, if I could get 150 nurses together on a, on a, you know, a Sunday, um, from hospitals all over. Let's just say all, all over Tokyo. We've got 800 hospitals in Tokyo or something. Um, just to get them sharing their, um, not just their clinical knowledge, but just, you know, they're nurses that do a very, very tough job. They've got um, life hacks. They've got things they're struggling with um, for them to be able to meet each other in a completely non-clinical setting, maybe meeting nurses from, you know, different types of hospitals. They've got different specialist knowledge to, to, to share so something like that, yeah. and then I guess the dream would be a bar camp for clinical staff where it's nurses, oncologists, surgeons, radiotherapists, sort of talking as equals. Now that maybe is a significant challenge, <laughs> but if I could, um, if I could maybe like give them orange prison uniforms or whatever as they walk in, um, so they <laughs> well, wouldn't, they wouldn't know. Right, they could look
0: like <laughs> if, they if work I could on some. The... On the satellite of love.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, again, I just think it would be amazing to, um, to break down the hierarchy, at least for a day. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: um, yeah. And, you know, just get nurses telling doctors what they need to know about nursing or, um, you know, getting radiographers to explain about the misconceptions of radiography or that kind of thing i think it would be very very worthwhile so so yeah but anyway starting with just 150 nurses in a room or in a a building with some rooms doing a very kind of free-form sessions true bar camp style so empty schedule big pile of pens and post-it notes and they write a topic or question or whatever stick it on the schedule go to that room and share with, with other nurses, I think it'd be um, fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I think for, for people listening, uh, who want to get involved, perhaps want to actually take a course, we're talking about make cancer Yeah.
1: And so you can register for the free cancer course there. It's, it's of course open to everyone who has any interest in cancer. Yeah. Um, pretty much everyone knows someone with cancer i guess unfortunately
0: yeah
1: um and you know there's um information about how to donate how to even volunteer
0: yeah
1: um and a lot of information for what to do if you're diagnosed with cancer or if you're supporting someone with cancer so yep that's the place to go make you can see my embarrassingly crude wordpress site
0: uh-huh. aha <laughs> no I... good
1: enough oh. good enough
0: uh, I'm going to enjoy, it. actually, I haven't been to the website since, I don't know, when did you launch it, actually? It's been a couple of months, I guess.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think I I think I think set it up, like, a year ago, because Google has recently charged me a horrific amount to renew the domain, but it's only in the, been in the past few months it's actually been, like, an active site with a bunch of stuff on, so. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Um, yeah. And I, I have, uh, when, and if I can help, uh, also not just with a podcast, but maybe, uh, with content in different forms, uh, you know, let me know, but I'll, I'll write to you separately about that. But I think for the purposes of this podcast, people listening, um, definitely will share this. And then let's also have a, an update soon and talk about how it's going.
1: Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Th- Bad news. I don't know. Scan, got a scam coming up. We'll we'll, we'll see. But yeah, Mm. so maybe bad news for me, but I'm sure MakeCam's history will be going from strength to strength. So yeah.
0: All right. Well, yeah. (laughs) Always, always uh, happy to talk to you. And and the bad news, well, uh, let's let's just cross that bridge when we get to it. (laughs) If we get to it. But Matthew, it's so good to talk to you. And I feel like we've only touched on the tip of the iceberg as it were but uh we'll be back soon with another uh update from you and i'm glad that that's how it is uh i wish i could come to japan and sit next to you there at the um at the dome there background in i assume <laughs> um, at the moon base but uh yes. uh not yet but i think when the little the little baby i'm uh, living with here is a little older i think that's that's one of the first places we'll head
1: uh, yeah, ju- just a little older, though, because, you yeah, you want you want the time when the flight is free. Absolutely, when the sweet sleep, spot. Sleep most of the, <laughs> exactly, sleep sleep through most of the flight, and uh, it's all good.
0: Yeah, so we'll get there, we'll get there. In the meantime, this is a great opportunity to get to talk to you, and uh, I'll uh, enjoy sharing this with everyone, and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Excellent, mm-hmm. look forward to it.
0: sussellatazia sembra te shango